Hey everybody, welcome to Rust Belt Startup. I'm your host, Ryan Miller, and if you're here for the first time, Rust Belt Startup is a podcast that primarily focuses on long-form conversations with artists, entrepreneurs, educators, people that are living unconventional lives in unconventional locations. Um, so thanks for being here. Uh, some of you may be, may be seeing me right now, and that's because this is the first official episode of the pod where I've gone video. So um, if you're tuning in on YouTube, thank you so much for, for checking this out. Or if you're in audio land, uh, also incredibly grateful to have you here. So um, let, let's get into it. What, what's happening? On the uh, housekeeping end, um, I've been super busy. There's a few things that I'm going to be launching here that you may be interested in before we get into our, our conversation. The first is that if you go over to the website, rustbeltstartup.com, uh, there's going to be a, a thing to sign up for a mailing list, a real mailing list that is going to be infrequent but hopefully super high value where I'm going to send out notifications of new pod episodes, um, but also um, kind of a little curated list of the stuff that I've been digging online. So that might be articles, that might be um, little shorts on social um, that relate to you know efficiencies around your business, just people that are doing cool things in their, uh, in their communities respectively. So if you're interested in getting that email, I would really invite you to sign up um, because that's where some good stuff is going to happen. Okay, okay, enough about me. Let's get into the pod because this is this is a great one. Uh, honestly, this is one for uh, one for the books and hopefully the first of, of many. Uh, so today's uh, podcast is really a conversation with Hilda M. Jordan. She's the founder of HMJ Consulting, and they're an anti-racist social equity firm that helps organizations attract and retain more diverse talent by identifying systems that stand in the way of helping members of their teams be successful. Uh, this is about transforming organizations into more equitable environments. Um, so Hilda's a graduate of Harvard University, and she's honestly one of the most inspiring young people I've ever met. My hope is that this is going to be the first of several conversations that we have. Um, I've gotten to work with Hilda in building her consulting firm a little bit, and we always end up, when we, we see each other you know, passing through or we're having a meeting, uh, a 30-second hello conversation turns into like a 30-minute conversation on you know, equity and justice and business and so many of the things that, that matter uh, to me. You know, she has so much wisdom and uh, we're going to get into some of that in this podcast conversation. So in this conversation, it really centers around her personal journey um, from upstate New York, going to Harvard, kind of what that experience was like, but then kind of coming full circle and coming back to upstate New York and developing um, a company that aims to make workplaces, organizations, systems more welcoming and equitable. We talk about systems from colleges to courts and how they can stand in the way of your success. Honestly, like this is one of the most inspiring conversations you're going to hear. It's been a great privilege to work with Hilda on the business, but honestly, it's been a great privilege to get to know her and to call her a friend. So I hope you are inspired and moved by this conversation with Hilda M. Jordan. I'm, I, I feel like I should pretend to do a intro and be like, oh, I'm here with Hilda Jordan and uh, and give some background. But I don't know that that's sure. That's you. I'll do that later. Okay. I'll do that later. Um, I'm nervous because of the video. So I'll just say that right out front. And this, th see, here's the thing about, uh, I guess maybe I'll start the conversation with a pre, with a disclaimer that. I feel like every conversation we had, I feel, I feel like it should, there should be people listening to it <laughs> and that, 
they go on forever and this will probably hopefully be like one of one of many conversations but um i had reached out to you what a year ago yeah year plus ago just on facebook because everyone was like you have to meet this rock star human being and i was just like this might be a little creepy but i don't know you can i I've, i hear a lot about you and then um when we i think we spent an hour on zoom kind of you were giving me your story and i want to start there i want to okay. start with like you're you're born um you know just just give us the abbreviated because you've got a great talk on this yeah. give us the abbreviated like you know hilda origin story for sure so my name is hilda mabel jordan the m is really important whenever i say my whole name so it's hilda m jordan um i'm named after my grandmother who was born in panama she is a dark-skinned black woman who immigrated to the u.s fleeing the u.s invasion um of panama and my mother, my middle name, Mabel, is based off of my mom, who's who was born the youngest of 10 in the Dominican Republic on a literal dirt floor in the late 60s. Uh, and she became the youngest nurse in her city. And I, I talk about the women that I come from because they are really my role models and my pillars and they make me who I am. If it weren't for their examples and their lessons and their wisdom, I would not have had the audacity to dream in the ways that I have and also the tenacity to work in the ways that they have modeled and shown me. Um, they're women of like really great sacrifice. And so my entire life growing up as a kid, I saw these role models of what it meant to just be folks who up and got it, right? Like who, sure, there are barriers there, are things that we don't know. There are ways that um, the world is literally not designed for us and designed against us. And still we're going to be loving and kind and generous and we're going to help everyone that we can along the way and so I grew up with these like very very like serious boss like, like they work they they mm -hmm. have dinner ready they have all the kids ready and whether that's with a man or without a man like they're gonna get it done like that those are the women that I came from and so at a young age I um I had that strong backbone and so I always knew that I was like smart and I wanted to help just like them. And I filled in where I could. And I decided, I say I decided, I feel like God decided, like put that in my heart that when I was four, I was going to go to Harvard. That's mm -hmm. the first time I said it. And at seven, I said, I wanted to buy my mom a house because we never had our own house. We lived, you know, three families in a three bedroom mm -hmm. apartment in New York City. My mom's a single mom. Um, and she supported a large part of our immigrant family. Oh, I didn't know you were in New York City before. So that's where I was okay. born. So I was born in New York City. I lived there up until I was seven. Okay. And that's when I moved to Utica. Got it. Um, was raised on the west side. Uh, went to all the bad schools, Kernan, Donovan, <laughs> uh, Utica. And I really had this mission right from a young age of like, I wanted to go to Harvard. I wanted to buy my, my mom a house. And then as I grew up, I wanted to help people like us to overcome those barriers because... My mom, for example, was the youngest nurse in her city, in, in the Dominican Republic, in her village, could lit, had literally brought tens of people into the world. Mm -hmm. But here were folks ridiculing and disrespecting her because she couldn't perfect the second language, right? And to me, this was like an unfounded thing. I'm like, do you understand like what this woman can actually do? And I see that being the case over and over again for folks, whether that's on race or ethnicity or color. And I was very, I've always been very outspoken, very well-spoken, very smart. And so I didn't have those experiences. And what I chose to do with that privilege was to always stand up for folks who like couldn't. I'm like, but they're brilliant. Like, do you see mm -hmm. this? Like what's going on? 
Um, Why Harvard though? Like as a as a young kid, like is that just the thing that you associated with? Like, oh, if I if I do this, that's my that's my I don't know. I had a logical my my logic was very simple. Smart people go to Harvard. Okay, yeah. I am smart, <laughs> so Therefore, I will go to Harvard. Yeah. And I think it was also just this thing that I understood the awe and the reverence in a way where like everyone was like, well, I saw it on the news because mm-hmm. no one in my house had gone to college. Like this wasn't mm-hmm. a thing. Um, and I tell people like maybe I saw it on the Spanish news. This is early 2000s around like different um, education policies. Maybe DACA was going on. Right? Like I'm just yeah. like trying to piece this together of like how did we how did I even come to be exposed to this idea of Harvard at such a young age? And I don't exactly know, which is why sometimes I say like, this is just divine intervention Mm -hmm. of God being like, yes, this is your thing. Um, So fast forward, get to Utica, and I very quickly kind of become, like I come in with like this Harvard girl, like I'm smart, I'm gonna do really well. Um, And so I did, I took every opportunity that I could to become this kind of like Harvard ready student, Mm -hmm. right? So I was, the leader of all the student clubs and like student council. And I took all the AP classes. I was a three sport varsity athlete, an eight year violin player. And the thing that really changed my life and brought me back to Utica and brought me back to start my like my business in Utica was that the Utica community fundraised $10,000 in four days for me in 2014. And I tell people this was before the GoFundMe days, before mm-hmm. it was just a link, like folks really went to- those envelopes full of cash and- <laughs> Literally, right? Yeah. I'm like, wow, like you went to an, you got in your car, went to an ATM and then came to a third location yeah. to make a donation because you believed in my dream and my desire to like make the world a better what place. What was the $10,000 for? So I'd gotten into the Harvard Summer School program. Okay. But the financial aid hadn't worked out. What, like, is the, what is the Harvard Summer School program? So it's a program for high school students to experience, it's like a summer camp, right? Mm-hmm. It's just like you take two college at courses, Harvard, you're yeah. on campus, right? But it's at Harvard, right? And so all the IVs do this. Most institutions have some kind of High school summer camp. Is it is it essentially marketing? It's like it's just it's it's the it's the the gateway drug for like see how awesome this is. You really need to come here. I think so, and but it also comes out of like I got the invitation to apply based on my PSAT score. Okay, right. So technically, I guess it's open if you know about it, you'll go and apply mm-hmm. for it. But what are the odds that a poor kid from Utica knows that there are these summer schools? that are even available if you don't have a tie into the Ivy League or someone to tell you about these experiences. That's a consistent thing that I think we talk about a lot is like, how would you know? How would you know? There's a huge knowledge gap yeah. and that's the privilege of generational knowledge, right? And then also the inequity of being sometimes the first person going yeah. through that. And so for me, I'd taken the PSAT, did really like well enough to hit that, whatever the threshold mm-hmm. is for yeah, like, we'll start to do the marketing yeah. oh, stuff, yeah, 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 right? Because yeah, yeah. I. It's funny, after I got into the Harvard Summer School program, I opened a drawer and I saw that there was had been one from like Brown and Princeton. I'm like, mom, did you hide these from ah, me? That's crazy. <laughs> right? Like I didn't apply to those. Yeah. Cause she was like, girl, you wanna go to Harvard? Yeah. And I don't know, it gotten lost somewhere in the house, yeah. but I'm like, these are also amazing universities. Well, how did I only get one, yeah. right? So there've been a ton of these serendipitous kind of moments, but yeah, Utica, always knew I wanted to go to Harvard did everything with my power, used the free after school programs, got into free SAT prep, worked part time to become the most competitive applicant possible. Cause I also had this chip on my shoulder of, I didn't want anyone to say that I'd gotten in because of a farm affirmative action. Mm-hmm. I wanted folks to, and this was like my understanding of it back then as a high school student, but it's like, I wanted folks to objectively look at my resume before they looked at any of my social identity qualifiers and be like, damn, 
And then mm-hmm. when you re- realize like, damn, this is a black Latina woman from a single mom with low income background that's done all of this, mm-hmm. then you're like, whoa, right? But that's not the thing that gets me into the door. It's actually um, the work in my merit, even though meritocracy is a touchy, touchy <laughs> idea. When I want to just pause here for a second because you know, obviously you're kind of driven to do this. And this is not a conversation about like, how do you get into Harvard? But like, I think the threat is, you know, can you talk a little bit about um, the, the support structures or lack of support structures when you're trying to, you know, I, I was I was listening yeah. to, who was I talking to the other day? I was listening to a podcast about like, how do you build habits and um, plans where really who you're playing for is like future you yeah like that's the only person you should be playing for and like can you talk a little bit about like you know who were the 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 people besides maybe your your mom and grandma or like what was the thing that helped you support you get there because oh my gosh representation matters so much right like the junior frontiers of the mohawk valley and mr jawad rashid who is a huge advocate in this community um and started that program really to expose students to college, right? Specifically students who look like me. Like I was a part of Young Scholars, um, which was helpful in like mm-hmm. kind of college prep, but it still felt like it was very like Utica kind of geared or specific. And I actually had some folks, actually I don't want to be too descriptive, but I did have some folks who told me that I should apply to community colleges because there wasn't a guarantee that I'd go anywhere. Get, get in anywhere else. Mind you, I graduated salutatorian, right? Mm-hmm. And like 1400 SAT school, mm-hmm. enter all the things, yeah, yeah. right? Where you know that my match school was still going to be a really competitive yeah. school, actually. Yeah. Um, and the thing that propelled me for this is that like I knew that I was a part of generations of sacrifices that hadn't quite come to fruition. Like I didn't feel like my family had gotten what they deserved yet and I was going to be the person to change that, right? Like I was going to show kind of the world that like we deserve these chances and we deserve mm-hmm. <laughs> to yeah. to be successful and sustainable in ways that I hadn't seen before. Um, and the motivation, like I said, came, you know, a part of it was like seeing that hard work and just being around people who always worked hard but still didn't seem to get their fair shake, right? Like I'm like, this hard work isn't translating to the dollars mm-hmm. that I feel like they should be, right? Um, but in terms of how I like kept myself going, it was really being able to have this kind of this idea of excellence, right? Like Harvard was just like that the manifestation anchor of, yeah, of excellence, yeah. right? Like if I'm being my best self and I'm doing the, if I'm the best of the best of everything that I do, then I'll get to Harvard, right? Mm-hmm. So it almost just became this, like this visualizing anchor. Mind you, I'd never seen the campus. I didn't right, really right. know it what the it idea looked of like, Harvard, right? Right, and yeah. knowing that it had this kind of prestige to it, that I'm like, okay, well, I have to what would the Harvard version of me look like, right? Like what does Hmm. me making the most out of each of these opportunities look like? So instead of taking this deficit mindset of like, oh, we don't have computers, we don't have the AP classes, we don't have this, like how can I make the most of what I do have to prepare for what is coming, right? Because if I get stuck in this, I don't have, I don't have, I don't have, I'm never going to have, Mm -hmm. right? And I already came from this don't have kind of place where we had so much joy and we had like, we were able to create so much that I knew that there was a system that worked that if I could kind of get into it or find my way in, mm-hmm. um, 
it'd be able to multiply in that same kind of way. So I don't, I hope I answered your question in terms of what kept me going was understanding that there's this like best of the best place and I need to take everything that I have available to me and do that to the best of my capacity to then become better and better. Because if I'm not making the most out of the accessible opportunities I have now, then what's what am I going to do when I actually do have that huge best opportunity? Mm-hmm. Like I'm not gonna know what yeah. to do with it. Uh, I don't wanna spend a ton of time on on the the Harvard part of, of your life here because I really want to talk about DEI. I want to talk about eats. I want to, I mean, I want to just get into like the stuff that we kind of just jam on all the time. Um, but I do want to just ask really quick. So I've never asked you this question. Like, so was the Harvard experience everything you thought it was going to be? Yes and no. And in certain ways more. Um, I think when I went in, I was expecting that we'd be eating on like linens and like really nice cutlery and, it's a college, you yeah. know, we had roaches too. <laughs> yeah. um, but it was in terms of like being surrounded by folks who are thinking in all of these creative and innovative ways and that are showing all of these different kinds of manifestations of best and great. Hmm. And to me, it was being in an environment um, where I had access to kind of everything, right? Um, and I was able to travel the world while I was at Harvard. I was able to connect with the leading professors on the topics of race. And I was able to, um, you know, one of my professors, Cornell West, who. That's crazy. Like, and he knows me, right? Like he calls me the philosopher, right? <laughs> and so to be able to be in a space where I can build a relationship yeah. with someone like that uh, and actually have a real relationship and then go to him and be like, damn, like, but these institutions were really not designed for us. Like, what do I do with this philosophy paper? Like my thesis that I'm literally explaining my existential position here and to have someone to pour into me intellectually and academically, but then also spiritually, right? Like in in a community and personal way Mm -hmm. was one of the big things that I found there um, where I wasn't like Hilda the leader or Hilda the star. It was just like Hilda the person who's does all of these things and also gets to talk about what she's doing, not in a way of like teaching it, but like actually well, like- you're just being it. I'm fascinated by this. I'm gonna do a whole podcast about this idea of a, of a senius. It's kind of a um, term that Brian Eno, I think coined, but um, this idea of like, you know, the misconception of the lone genius and the lone philosopher, like you are a part of a thing that was happening in this, I guess a scene, right? And it's like, the sheer fact that you were there it like yeah you were you were you said it you had to surround yourself with like all of these creative people in this environment that acts as an accelerant to you, you being able together, to do great right? things right Where, and and that's exactly what it was right like some you talked about the lack of structure support that I had in my journey throughout high school a bit right it's the fact that I, ha- I was lucky because I think in my class, there were a couple of us that were really, really great. So like Trin, who's valedictorian, went to Yale. Miranda, who's a good oh, friend, yeah, went, Trin, to, yeah. went to Cornell, mm-hmm. right? Like, And we, we kind of had, like within the AP group, there was like a subset of us that were all kind of like first generation immigrants, college students figuring this out, who had this sense of excellence. Like we have to be really, really, really good here because we're going on to the next thing mm. that was really supported from a student end. And I think there were enough seasoned educators there at the time 
you know, I had Mr. Delito and Al Rachi. These are like some of the old, like the old Italian dudes who have been like teaching since like the textbooks were first made mm-hmm. kind of folks, but who knew the material so well that could then entertain really our creative questions and like our like pushing and interrogation of it in a way that wasn't disruptive, but actually inspired our intellectual mm. pursuits. So that actually, like I had that academic kind of support yeah. because we rose to that occasion and we, then we were asking the questions instead of being shut down or being in spaces where we don't have time to go over that or like whatever, right? That became the ethos. Mm-hmm. So we had l- leveled that up, but structurally it still felt like I was creating the wheel for the very first time, right? I remember having to go to my guidance counselor and tell her that she had ACT waivers in the bottom of her drawer because no one had ever asked her about that. And then she found them, Hmm. right? Like I remember having to literally coach my, the adults in my life that were supposed to be helping me through this to be like, hey, I get that you have doubts about me going here or whatever, but can you please just send my transcripts? Like, Like it's not me getting coached through the doubts. It's like, I have to talk you through this and be like, yeah, nope, I know, I know it's really hard. I know there's no chance, like, yes, 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 this is first, I'm the first to do, uh uh-huh, uh-huh. When in reality, I hadn't been the first one to do it. There are Harvard alumni from Proctor, right? right? And so, but it's the fact that the institution hadn't quite adopted that as an actual pathway for students um, that made it an issue and a struggle. And of course, I... I did. I started my consulting career at Harvard as an undergraduate student in the equi- the social equity mm-hmm. like DEI yeah. space, um, and one of the big things that I talk about is the fact that my AP Chemistry year, I had to go door to door selling coupon books to fundraise for the chemicals that we needed to complete the lab hours to qualify for the AP exam. Right. So when we're talking about the lack of structural support, it's the fact that my free time, when I should have been maybe learning the material right. to get a better AP test, I was spending trying to get the money, which in hindsight was probably less than $2,000 collectively to be yeah, able just to, to get to, into Just to that. participate, just to even just get, get a to shot, partici- right? Just to get a shot, not even to participate yep. yet, but just to get a shot. Yep. And then when we think about that, it's like $2,000. Like really think about how little money realistically- mm-hmm. In the grand scheme of things. In the grand, you know, personally yeah. like $2,000, it's not nothing yeah. to blink at, right? But like from an institutional standpoint, right. $2,000 for a group of 30 students to get into an AP exam. Which is then the, the you know, that is a stepping stone to, you know, we, we, we talk about the ripple effects, right? Like, like I, I'll take that bet, right? Like if that unlocks the, all this other stuff, like that's a, that's a pretty good investment. The ROIs are incredible, yeah. right? If now I have this, there's 20 less hours that I'm spending to get just $200. Yeah. For this, I can actually spend those 20 hours doing the experiments or reading the material or connecting with my friends to talk about this or having a lab group or a study group, whatever that looks like. Was it shocking to you, and I'm making a gross generalization, um, when you're at Harvard going from, I'll call it like, I don't want to call it like the scarcity to abundance, but like, was that when you got there and you're like, oh my God, like there's all of these, there's a ton more stuff that I have access to. Was that, um, was that the the encouraging yeah. discour not discouraging you know what I mean like what it was what did it that overwhelming feel? kind overwhelming. of thing yeah. yeah yeah no it was really it was cool I think it was like a, oh I can just ask an email and someone will probably be able to find this or give this to me <laughs> oh that's so nice right yeah. and so it just helped me do even more mm-hmm. um, which is why I have like a 
four page CV as a 25 year old, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. Um, and that's how I took it. So I like, I was like, great. You're telling me I can spend my summer abroad and get college credit for it and not have to pay for it. Yeah. Sounds like a great time, right? Like, yes, right? Yeah. Like, oh, you're telling me I get to go to China for a week to teach students leadership about student activism and then give a keynote and you'll cover everything. All I have to do is yeah, sign me up. Come up with the curriculum. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. And so it became this, I always had this kind of yes and mindset. So being in an upper in a place where it's like, sure, whatever you want to do, right? Uh yeah, that's crazy, right? Or it's not crazy, but it's... In, come, it's empowering. It's empowering, yeah. it's, it, it was really, like, it was a cool time. And I think also, like, it was also nice to be around... Um, Harvard had a lot of diversity, right? So mm -hmm. there was, like... Utica had prepared me for it in many ways. Um, but my shock, I tell folks, you know, I'd never been around that much concentrated white wealth before. Just very, <laughs> quite frankly, where I'm like, oh your last name is the same last name as the building we're in right now. <laughs> this isn't a, it's not Smith either. Yeah, right? It's like yeah. Wigglesworth, right? Like, yeah, of course it is. Of course it is. Yeah. Right? Like clearly it's like, <laughs> you're the family that yeah. literally, right? Like, Oh, and it's like, are you going to go, are you going to deviate and go to a non Harvard Ivy? Right? Yeah. Like that's, so I was in those spaces and what I think I, what it helped me own more of was like, damn, like this is actually really unique. And the questions that I'm asking are some of the first times anyone has asked these questions of the material. Mm -hmm. And I found that my professors, a lot of them, I mean, obviously you self-select the classes also, but like my professors were really open to that because here is a new perspective and someone who didn't feel ashamed to bring mm -hmm. that new perspective, but instead was like, have you thought about it from this angle? Yeah. Um, and so I came in seeing my difference in background as an asset to help understand what was going on and make more room for the application and the real teaching around those topics and themes. Because now you're not just, it's easy to explain something to someone when you share all the same backgrounds sure. and knowledges, right? And experiences. Yeah. And experiences, but it's, a bit more challenging when all of a sudden you're like, oh wait, how do I show you the importance of this across mm -hmm. that huge gap? And so I think I encouraged my professors, but also my peers to do some of that a little bit in the way that I would ask questions of like, I don't know that experience. Like, what's it like to become an Eagle Scout in Colorado? Like, <laughs> <laughs> right, like cannot relate, right? Like, what's it like yeah. to go summer in Nigeria, right? Like, what are these experiences? Um, and how can I learn from them, right? Like, how does that give me now a touch point for someone else that I meet that maybe has that experience that I don't, but now I am at least mm -hmm. aware of, so I know that a little bit. Um, yeah. You do the Harvard thing, and then, uh, and push back if I'm getting any of the bio stuff wrong, right? So uh, then you're gonna do, we're gonna do law school? Yeah. I remember we were talking, you're doing law school, and then did you start working for a firm? And I, I wanna get into the roots of how, you're, how, we, how you got to here, yeah. right? Like, because um, I think it's important to, you know, I don't want this to just be a biopic. Like, I want this to be like yeah, yeah, a yeah. conversation around like, you know, evolution of, you know, how do your experiences shape, you know, a calling or um, your, um, or a career choice, or frankly, yeah. just like the impact that you want to have in the world. Can you talk about that experience kind of oh thrashing gosh. through law? Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. So when I was little, I thought the way that I was going to help people was through the law, yeah. right? Because I'm like, okay, I'm going to become a civil rights lawyer. I'm going to do the whole class action discrimination mm-hmm. lawsuits. This is my thing. That's yeah. I. I was a. I took our mock trial team all the way to being the one of the top eight teams in the country. Sorry, in the in the state in New York State, after Utica had never made it to the final round before I joined mm-hmm. the team. Right, so. You know, my first job here was with was at uh, a local law office. Did a number of legal internships. Mm-hmm. Uh, was a president of the Black Pre Law Association. I was very much yeah. I'm gonna I'm gonna be you know lawyer. I'm gonna put an esquire at the end of my very much so, right and that'll there. be the you know the polishing of like my family will sure. now have their yeah in, right. Yeah. Funny, my family still calls me the lawyer because I solve our problem. Like it's yeah. like oh Hilda, what do we? Sure, I can figure that out. Right, yeah. so. Lawyers are just big problem solvers, right? Is the way that I see it, and so um, in the in the in the best scenario, in the best case scenario, right? <laughs> yeah, no, the, good lawyers, the, good, the good lawyers, the good lawyers, the good guys, the good guys, yeah. right? Um, so, but by the time I actually finished Harvard, I was really burnt out. Mm-hmm. So even though like I did have this great experience because I'm a low income first gen student, I was working 20 hours a week to be able to take care of my responsibilities at home and on campus for myself, right? I, um, during my junior year of high school, I don't know that I've shared this like kind of publicly, but um, I sued my dad pro se for child support. Wow. So my first legal victory was for myself. And that was a huge thing because I remember telling myself, and I had to fight my mom for it. She's like, don't take him to court. I had to fight my like, politics and like think about this of like damn this black like my father who's a black man could really go to jail because I'm trying to hold him accountable to like be supportive of me yeah. right my grandmother's calling me telling me like don't do this my uncle my dad's brother's like you're gonna ruin your relationship with your father forever if you do this like don't do this right so and at the same time I was working for Martha Minow who's a the president president emeritus of Harvard Law School as a research as a researcher for her on the role of forgiveness in the law so here I am having my own personal like reconciliation through the wow. law story while doing the academic I think it's work. Funny, not funny. I think it's crazy that you're saying it's it's a reconciliation through the law. Like that's a that's a totally different way than I was looking at Be, through that. Right. And it, and this is where and that's literally what I was writing through with Professor Minow. Right. Like mm-hmm. I'm I it was reconciliation because I'm like, damn, my dad has not been present in my life and responsible for me ever. Right. And here he is. He had a different lifestyle. That's a whole nother podcast how you can get into. <laughs> are you but are you still are you still um, like we have the best relationship? Say, how did ever. it work out? How did it literally, work out? Literally because of yeah. that, we hit such a turning stone in our relationship, right? Because for me, this this was about holding him accountable, where I'm like, even mm-hmm. if it's twenty dollars a week that you legally yeah. have to give me, you are going to be responsible for me. And you're going to help. And the reason why I took him to court is because my mom had had her third surgery that year. Like I'd been going back and forth with medical appointments, mm-hmm. running up credit card bills. I'm working 60 hours a week during the summer. This is my brother's last summer before going to college. He's working 40 plus hours amongst three different jobs. Not, neither of us are having these like youthful experiences that right, we're supposed right. to be having. Yeah, you're in survival mode. And barely surviving with my mom who's literally handicapped yeah. now for the whole summer. And that just wasn't fair to me, right? I'm like, even if it's nothing, I'm like, but you're going to have to think about me and remember that you have a daughter at least once a month when they take out this money from you. 
And that was that's the conviction with which I did that, right? And and it, to me, it was this bigger thing about my values and my ethics and what justice means. Because how can I tell people to trust me to advocate for them or take them mm. to court and do this if I'm not willing to do that for myself? If I'm not willing to yeah. go through the process and get my own accountability and justice, how hypocritical of me to tell you to trust me with your entire life and mm. with these kinds of processes? Yeah. So as a junior in college, I made that decision. Um, successful, one. Yeah. Got got some decent money. Was able to start working 10, 15 hours instead of the yeah. 20 that I did. Um, and then it also led me to recognize just like how shitty of the actual process the court thing was. Um, and how so much of the reconciliation that kind of happened afterwards were in like slower conversations well after that time period. And, um, you know, he apologized because it, he recognized like, damn, like I brought you to that point of doing that. Mm -hmm. And that's when we yeah. were able to, for the first time, really have that deep conversation about what that abandon looked like and what it what felt this, like. And, um, that was like my real like legal experience. Right. But even in that, I saw the law as an instrument, right? Like yeah. this tool for reconciliation for these greater goods. And by the time I graduated from college, I also organized around police brutality on campus that same year. So I had a very full mm. junior. You had a full docket. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but those things just like really made me interrogate a lot of these institutions that we like, the real role that these institutions play and what it is that they're maintaining, mm -hmm. right? Law and order versus like actual justice and peace and truth. Um, so burnt out and I did what uh, any good Harvard student does. I got a fellowship to, <laughs> to go recuperate, um, go abroad. So I spent a year in Panama actually after graduation. Um, and it was awesome. I was dancing, doing intercultural relations, like race work mm -hmm. through dance, um, which was my tied to my thesis. And just, you know, I wanted to figure out this whole race thing through the law. And so much of my career endeavors have been my own personal life story, just yeah. like fleshing out because I'm an Afro Latina, right? But I grew up and my mom doesn't identify as black. No one around me was black except in school, right? So me and my brother are the only black kids really in our family until like my cousins immigrate later on, right? Mm -hmm. And um, I, I grew up being told you're Dominican, not black. And I'm like, what does that mean? Like, <laughs> yeah. what do you mean? Like, what are we talking about, right? And so all of these questions, cause you're talking about, you know, this trajectory of like purpose and life and career. Yeah. I have, my life has, has led like these like deep questions and these like life circumstances have been what have geared both like what I've studied, what mm -hmm. I've become professionally and just like the truth that I've lived. So they're very much so connected. And I think about, right, like when I took that position with Martha Minow, right, I didn't know that I was gonna be, I think maybe I'd started to sue my dad already at that point, but it was like looking at the law as this reconciliatory tool, right? So I started mm -hmm. to find like professional projects that fit into what my life and personal passion was at the time. So following Panama, I was like, okay, what do I want to do? I'd gotten an offer to work at in Sotomayor's chambers before I left to Panama. Wow. And I was like, wow. I was, yeah, I was almost like, 
dang, I can say no to that fellowship and just go, yeah. right? But I was at such an E that I'm like, that's really not going yeah. to work for, like I'm not going to be successful yeah. there, right? And so I have to trust God that if this came up for me now, when I come out a year later, there's gonna be something mm -hmm. even better. And so I ended up in DC at this law firm that felt like my dream firm, right? They did appellate court, Supreme Court litigation, doing impact class actions. They were the good guys, mm -hmm. TM, right? Like literally the exact thing that I thought I wanted to build my entire legal career for. Mm -hmm. Just kind of like fell on my door, right? Like yeah, I, through the yeah. networking power, it just kind of like fell onto my door. So I was like, great, I can go work here. We've talked about this a lot of like, how do you, how do you uh, not only attract, um, you know, uh, just diverse talent, but like, how do how are we not equipping people to succeed yeah. in, in those environments? Well, yeah, I think it was it was like a, I don't know that we got to the DEI stuff at all. No, we haven't. I, yet. We haven't yet. No, <laughs> um, I think it was a part of it. Like, I was maybe a bit more radical and hopeful and like innovative and entrepreneurial, even yeah. right than what um, my role maybe specifically allowed you to, or allowed you to be allowed me yeah. to be right like maybe if I were a lawyer already and I would have come in as an associate I would have had a somewhat different experience mm -hmm. but being more in that paralegal office manager role mm -hmm. um, it seemed different I think we did start some cool initiatives so before I quit and become a DEI consultant like full-time We'd started doing things to improve the culture because it's also during the pandemic, right? So mm -hmm. everyone's kind of transitioning to this virtual hybrid work world. And so we started doing like monthly like lunches where anyone could lecture, kind of like talk about mm -hmm. anything for 30 minutes and yeah. you ask questions and just connect. Um, we started reading like some Audre Lorde stuff, you know, like we were doing mm -hmm. that DEI work like slowly but surely. What is DEI work, by the way? For So like DEI work, that stands for diversity, equity and inclusion. And I think it's a really, they're big words for explaining a focus on the experiences that people are having in the workplace, right? Diversity, equity, and inclusion is about making the day-to-day -day work environment more accessible and empowering for everyone in, an, in a given institution. And specifically doing that by recognizing folks who have not been served by it, so who have not been a part of the good thing. Like, how do we expand the good things that we have in this company so that everyone can participate in those great things? And so sometimes that takes education work, like workshops around what the issues are and what the barriers are before we can actually start to remove mm -hmm. them or to change things. So a lot of the diversity, equity, and inclusion space now is primarily in like that professional development training yeah. space of let me help you recognize the problems right yeah. because some of it's just seeing right see literal like vision work because yeah. it's like when you've been doing something the same way yeah. for 20 years right or x amount of years or the yeah. industry has been doing things in this kind of way right um or the way that that's the way that's been set up quite literally how it's structurally designed, right? So that it does benefit certain lifestyles mm -hmm. and not others or certain people people from that have that generational knowledge, right? That know-how. Mm -hmm. um, you don't, you're blind to it, right? It's, it's the way that um, my framework uses food a lot, equity eats, mm -hmm. right? So, yeah, yeah. But it's like the way that a seasoned chef, or someone who cooks can tell you the difference between an onion that's like, 
you need to use this today because tomorrow it's not gonna work mm -hmm. versus someone who's not a professional and is just like, these are it's two an onion. onions, right? <laughs> yeah. um, and, I, and I think within this space, a lot of what I was struggling with was some of the management processes that were kind of left to the interpersonal like dynamics because there weren't a lot of policies mm -hmm. there weren't a lot of procedures set up right so it was like how well you perceived you got along with someone or how well they perceived your talent or not there wasn't a real way of doing things which the more and more that I work I find that more and more environments really work like that it's mm -hmm. like oh I trust the leader or whoever the manager yeah. is yeah. they'll run their team however mm -hmm. they run their team um, which is allows for some flexibility which mm -hmm. is great but then also leaves us to the susceptibility of that individual's biases and that individual's um, worldview or like life exposure right if you've never <sighs> been exposed to someone and you've never yeah. been exposed to their needs or their assets even you won't know how to include that into this space if there's no shared understanding of what that space is um, so I got into this space, the DEI work, I'd started it as an undergrad, which I shared with mm -hmm. you. And it was around that same premise of like, huh, I feel like my professors and grad students don't actually understand what it's like for me to be on this campus as a low income, first generation, underrepresented like mm -hmm. woman. <laughs> yeah, yeah. When everyone that you've been teaching, I studied philosophy also, right? It's like most mm -hmm. of the people that you've been teaching are all white men. Wigglesworth. Who, <laughs> you know, or the harp, like, yeah. right? Like, who, <laughs> whose dads gifted them, you yeah, know, the yeah. version of the Republic when they were 14, yeah. right? Like, very different set of exposures. Yeah. Even if you can't really understand it, that's not the first time you're reading it when you're in the classroom now, right? right? right. Um, <laughs> that was my bedtime story. Yeah. <laughs> like, oh, Dante's allegory, the cave? Yeah, yeah. of course I know what that yeah. is, right? And so I, what I found was that I'm like, hey, you want, you as a, you as a, the person in power, you want folks to experience the best of what you have. Like the reason why you're in this position is because you believe in the value of this project. Mm -hmm. This project can be a company, a mission or whatever, right? Like you want yeah. people, you want to give this good to the world because yeah. you believe it's worth leading, investing your time into, right? Um, when you're diversifying, that's because you want more people yeah. to experience the goodness of this, right? But the ways in which you're doing it are not actually compatible with the people you're trying to reach because sometimes like they would be, you know, it's like, okay, let's do an icebreaker. For example, this is something mm -hmm. that I did in my workshop. I'm like, let's do an icebreaker. Cool. If your icebreaker question is like, where did you summer? Right, right. Bitch, I, excuse the language. <laughs> no, go ahead. <laughs> That's sometimes how I feel, right? No, just, like, just, just put it right out there. I'm like, girl, I summered cleaning <laughs> toilets on this campus. Like, what do you yeah. mean summered, right? <laughs> and then everyone else is like, oh, I went to Italy. I went here, yeah. I did this, I did that, right? Like, you're already establishing this kind yeah. of power imbalance, right? Even with the question that you asked, as opposed to like, hey, how did you spend your summer? Yeah. Did you have a good summer, right? Yeah. Like, different ways so that it's actually an open, a bit more hmm. of an open-ended yeah. question yeah. so that there is no right or wrong answer right there actually is no right or wrong answer but when you say things like where did you summer right like you're already yeah. assuming so much within yeah. that short phrase who are you wearing <laughs> tonight you know what I like yeah, yeah. and it's like um 
or even some of the other things. It's like, well, clearly all of you have learned this already or like you already know that I'm not going to bother with it. Right. Like a lot so, of assumptions. And and with all those assumptions, like now I have to be a brave enough soul to tell you that you're wrong and then also ask mm -hmm. for you to help me at the same time. Yeah. And that takes a certain level of communication skills at confidence. the same time. Confidence yeah. and also communication skills. Like how many times have you really told someone that they're wrong and gotten them to explain what they really meant mm -hmm. in the same breath? Think about like think like think through like the times where you've like really been in conversation with someone and you're like, hey, so those premises that you're working with are wrong, but I still need you to explain like Help me get to where you're at. That's hard because I, 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 I mean, yeah. look, look it, it, and I think, especially if I look at the experiences of um, the last, I don't know, five, six years, right? Um, I, I'll say that I, I, I almost feel like people are beyond persuasion, and a lot, so like I don't even bother. Like I might be the, the premises that you're working with are wrong, and I'm, I'm not speaking necessarily political, yeah, yeah, but yeah. like from a worldview. Um, or even like the, like, I assume that you know these things or that you already have those sets of experiences. Mm -hmm. How do I correct you to tell you that I don't have those experiences, but that I'm still worthy of the opportunity mm -hmm. that you have? Because I need to now show you that the experiences that I don't have are not necessary for me to get the opportunity that I don't fully understand, but that I'm hoping I'm the right enough person mm -hmm. for. That takes a lot of courage yeah. to be like, I don't know this, but I believe that that's what I want. And I have enough skills to figure it out as I'm in it. You're also making an assumption, which you can't make in the moment, that the person that you're having that conversation with will receive that in the, in the, in, I don't want to say the right way, that will just receive it and acknowledge it. In a and, growth and, and a, a learning right, perspective. As opposed to feel that, that's what I was getting at with the last comment is not worldview. It's like, you, you know, it, it, it's the, it's the idea of like, instead of like, I'm sorry, it's, I'm sorry you feel that way. Right. In a nutshell. Right. Because I didn't. And, and I think what we're what I tried to show folks with a lot of my workshops and trainings is that. Where I try and be a bridge a lot of mm -hmm. times. Right. Like that. That's how I maybe that's how I would describe a lot of my work of like, OK, you're part of the power at B is not the right word, but like maybe you're part of the institution. Like, you know how these things work. Mm -hmm. Here's someone who's brand new, has literally no idea or context of it. You want to get this person to do something, mm -hmm. right? This person wants to be a part of that. But the ways in which you're communicating those things are just literally mm -hmm. getting They're, lost yeah. in translation. And so a part of it is how do we build up the skills of some of those first generation folks to be able to know how to ask those questions or know which pieces to check on because I, those are useful life skills and communication skills and professional skills of how do you ask the right questions? Mm -hmm. How are you non, non-threatening even though, mm -hmm. you know, and you have to do extra work to be non-threatening. If you look a certain way, you have to make sure that even if you're annoyed, you don't reflect that in your tone so that folks don't, you know, yeah. it doesn't get added yeah. on in all these other ways. And what I, and then the training and education that goes to folks that are in power, that are part of that dominant culture, it's like, hey, can you step outside of that bias or the way that you want to be spoken to just for a little bit, mm -hmm. even if just for a little bit, to really think about the bravery of that person in front of you, right? That literally has no, like is doing this for the very, very first time, has no one to talk to about this, mm -hmm. and you are the only person that they're talking to about this. 
right? Like how do you value that as an experience in and of itself to then move into it that way? So some of the work is just helping people see that that's the mm-hmm. actual experience that's happening and that the conflict is happening not because y'all don't like each other, you have all these things, but it's actually that like, this is just actually a very brand new and novel encounter. Mm -hmm. Even though it feels like it's supposed to be this routine thing that happens every day. It's like, no, this is the first time for this person. And you've never been really asked these fundamental first time questions because you've always encountered people that just, yeah, kind of know. Yeah. Who know? Yeah. Yeah. Ryan, we're always everywhere. I know. I I, I know. We got to do part two here. Um, I know you got to go. Yeah. And so, uh, this is lovely though. I, I, one of the reasons I love talking to you is because you give me so much space to share the depth and breadth of a lot of these ideas. These are not tweetable concepts or ideas, right? They're They're just not. and, And I think that I am also giving myself, I'm working on giving myself a lot more grace and not being able to explain these things and just a very simple answer. Cause I can give, I guess I could give a better, like not a better, but I can give this like simplified, like diversity is the ways that we're all different and equity is relational. It's different than equality because it's not getting the same thing. It's getting what you need. Inclusion is bringing folks into the experience so that, you know, you're not just present, but you're actually, you're not just like silently there seen, but not heard, but that what, how you want to engage is part of the structure mm-hmm. in the space. Um, but that still doesn't really explain to people like what those things do or what they are. And what I want folks, at least from this first episode to walk away understanding, cause I know there will be more. Yeah, it's good. We're going to do the well, right, hell that teaches Ryan DEI mini series. We need, listen, we've had the dialogues around it from hair I know, I know. to identity related aggressions to tone to outreach. You just mapped we've, out season one. This of is, that. we could, yes, yeah. all of it. Uh, um, but it, because it matters. Like I think what I'm, what I'm, on a larger mission to do is to help people reintroduce some of that nuance and slowness and that real like get to know a person Mm -hmm. right because all these systems work as like honestly intellectual and social shortcuts to tell us who we should value and who we shouldn't and who we can dismiss and who we're going to bother to have a full conversation with Mm -hmm. and who we're who's not even worthy because they don't have conversation at all because yeah. they don't have the credential or they live on the on the yeah. wrong street or they look X kind of way. But you just, and I tell people this a lot of times, I'm like, what if people saw you at your actual worst moment? Like, mm-hmm. what if, what if, <laughs> right? Like the one time I saw you was actually at your worst moment or after mm-hmm. you've been on survival mode for three weeks. Yeah, yeah we're talking about this and yesterday. I'm, like, what is that? You, you know, you just can't just turn that off. And yet, Right. Folks who are kind of coming at this from a, I've been in survival mode for months on end are not being even valued for being. It's like, oh, no, see, they're, that's just a crappy person. And they're like, they don't mm-hmm. deserve this or they're not polished enough. But I'm like, do you know what it's like to live at that high stress, like high strung, no security kind of level? Mm-hmm. And not saying that that's where everyone lives, but that's a very real reality for a lot of we were talking about this in relation to our students specifically, yeah. Yeah. But like how people show up in the space. Right. So. My work, I say, is trauma-informed. It's equity-driven like because at the end of the day, we're all people who are really trying to do our best and find 
spaces where we can contribute as much as we can for a collective good. And I find that to be true of all human beings, right? right? At the end of the day, we all want the same things. We literally all want happiness, Mm -hmm. right? We want to be able to pursue life, liberty, and happiness, right? And so I think if we start to, if we operate from that premise and just recognize that, huh, your definition of happiness is just different from mine, how can, and we think about this in a way of like, how do we make those compatible, right? Or or maybe we're not personally compatible, but like, how do I make it so that it's not at the expense and I'm not creating mm-hmm. unnecessary barriers for you, mm-hmm. right? And I think that's the collective mindset that my equity work brings about where it's like, everyone can eat right now, right? Like we have a big enough table mm-hmm. where everyone can really flourish and be doing something that they love. But it just, but it takes time and trust, right? For folks to feel like they can genuinely say what they want, and also they can discover what they mm-hmm. want. Because if this is again your first time, like we, I know we think about slavery is so far ago, and we think about the civil rights movement is so far long ago. But I'm like, it was less than sixty years ago, right? Or less than seventy years ago, where I, like, someone who looked like me couldn't maybe would not have been able to walk into this building. Right, right. That's someone's life, like, in people's lifetimes. Right, right. That's, right? that's your, you know, your grandmother's, right? Like Quite that's their generation. Like my grandmother's generation. generation. And so it's like these issues, as much as we want to distance ourselves from mm-hmm. them, it's not that long, especially when the folks who are still running and making a lot of these decisions grew up in that time yeah. period, right? Like Those are the experiences that were, are informed. Were formative right? for yeah. them, right? Of like, I only saw black people as servants, mm-hmm. right? Like, I didn't, I mean, I wasn't rude, and this is, I'm not a white person, so I can't actually speak from this perspective, right? I don't know that, but um, it, it, it becomes like what was normalized, yeah. right? If like, you grew up in a city where your Sunday picnics were literal lynchings, but no one has ever accounted for that, you can change, you can try and change the name of a park, but if no one's ever said, hey, a bad thing used to happen yeah. in this park and we changed it because we don't want to be like that anymore, but you just kind of hide it, that makes a difference, right? Because yeah. that's just like, we're just not going to talk about that. No, mm-hmm. it wasn't great, but like, but no, there are actual people who are living in, who are the grandchildren of those people, mm-hmm. who are the kids of those people, who still have those memories, or maybe they may not yeah. have them actively, but they have that fear. They, have them in them. Yeah. they feel it, they were raised in that. That's why they won't ask. And I was just telling this to someone, I'm like, if you're waiting for, like culturally, I, I was doing some of this culture work and I was like, listen, I come from a culture where it's like, if I'm not invited, I'm not gonna ask to go. And from an American professional culture, it's like, you have to ask to go, mm-hmm. you have to be proactive. But it's like, I literally come from, like what I'm raised is like, if people want you there, they're going to invite you, mm-hmm. right? So it feels almost countercultural, right? To ask someone to be in part of the space. Mm-hmm. And then I almost feel, because we, I'm almost raised like in this way, of like if someone asks you, it's kind of awkward to say no, right? To be like, oh. so now it feels yeah. like I'm pushing, I mean, they're pushing myself onto you. And I have to somehow like let that go or suspend all those cultural norms that I grew up in to try and come into this cultural space mm-hmm. that's very comfortable for you. But you never thought to ask me to be a part of this. Well, and because I, that that experience can be like, well, if they want to go, they'd say something. Ex- right? That's exactly that's exactly right? what happens. And it's like I have 
said some things before and people have shut me down and told me that I don't yeah. belong there. And so how do I know that that's not what's going to happen to me again right mm-hmm. now? Yeah. And so it's more like, well, if you wanted me there, you would have asked me because guess what? You asked so-and-so, mm-hmm. you asked so-and-so, you told so-and-so and you didn't tell me. And then you get to the point where like, why didn't you tell me? Mm-hmm. And if I can't rule out that it's because right. of my race or my gender, I'm going to tell myself a story, right? And if I don't have a reason to believe that it's not because of that, what else, what else is there, right? We got a lot more to talk about. Where can people find you, connect with you? We'll do this again, but yeah. like, let's just... HMJEquityConsulting.com. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm putting up more video content now. I want to be able to host some of these conversations. I have some upcoming community events. I'm actually going to start a page for kind of like open things that I'm like a part of or joining. Um, I don't know. Do I have public community events right now? I don't. But if you check Mm -hmm. out the website, hmjequityconsulting.com and join the mailing list, I'll be able to kind of share with you when I'm doing community events here in Utica, having some of these conversations um, or giving a workshop. Uh, if you're looking for DEI consulting, I know that this is more of my personal biopic and all of that. Um, I really provide my favorite training, the cultural humility training. I bring in Dominican food and we talk about these kinds of cultural differences and what it means to build a workplace that can actually give everyone an equal chance to compete and succeed such that then it really is up to how much effort you put in. And it's not just, um, a matter of like how bold and brave and courageous you are to try and put in the effort. So you can follow, you know, check in at hmjequityconsulting.com. Ryan always knows how to get a hold of me. And I hope that like we can, one, we will we'll definitely do, be collaborating we'll more in the yeah. future. Um, and then we can talk about specific DEI topics. Yeah. This was a good one of like, as we're going through this, I figured out what the unlock is, yeah. to, um, which is that like, because this is what happens in our regular conversations. It's like we're hanging and then we're passing. When when time is short, we really start cranking. And the same thing happens yes. now. It's like we just got to block out 15 minutes and just we'll just crank, you know. And I think if we do it in those chunks, we can keep yeah. it to one or two questions because I also I just genuinely enjoy talking to you. Um And I think that it feels, it's also really nice to be in a safe space where I'm like, I can share these stories and I don't feel like I'm rambling because Mm -hmm. it feels really important to me. I'm going to cry, Ryan. I'm literally like tearing up. But it is important. Um, It's important to me too. And there's a lot of my... develop like my actual like professional development mm-hmm. work is also happening through this because it's gaining you know we talk about the importance and the power of relationships mm-hmm. right it's like the power of counting you as one of my friends and someone that comes from a very different background than me to be able to flesh out these conversations mm-hmm. and the importance of these conversations and to feel like we're both growing mm-hmm. in our ability to have these conversations in live time as we are on the precipice of like doing some really really transformative work for our city mm-hmm. and the number of folks that I've even introduced to the incubator and the programs that you do already mm-hmm. that I like on your next refinery push like I like I will like recruit for right mm-hmm. that because I trust 
you and I also feel like there are real opportunities for our community and just the world really to better connect with mm-hmm. each other like it's a long way of saying that these are very hope giving for me and very uh regenerative because I think that it can be easy to feel like this work is performative but it's not like it really Mm -hmm. it really matters and it like it really also like it saves lives it really saves lives when people know that the things that they're experiencing and those concerns aren't just like in their head like they're not just made up right like these are real issues and barriers that take years off of people's lives and that add more to other people's lives and so I want people to be able to live long fulfilling lives and feel like their work matters and their lives matter and who they are as an individual is important and I think that's my mission overall right and I feel really blessed to have and be living the kind of life where I'm a testament to that where I'm like yeah like I've had these really crazy dreams and hopes and things that were deemed impossible that I said I was I'm possible Mm -hmm. to and that I shared boldly enough with enough people to really do that like a year ago Ryan I was telling you I want to create this mega thing and mm-hmm. like all these channels you're like Hilda this is like X numbers of companies together like yeah. you can't like can we and like just through fleshing it out more and more to be where like I'm at right now more will come on another episode <laughs> on that um, is just it feels surreal like I really do feel like like I I, I after so many words, I may not have good words, right? Like, just to share the gratitude that I have and how I hope the equity work that I'm doing, both in talking and teaching and tool building and transforming, lives on well beyond anything that I can personally do right like yeah I don't know I'm I'm very these are tears of joy (laughs) and um and gratitude and like thank you for welcoming me on and just kind of letting me chat for a really long time no this is great we'll we'll do it again I'm like I was getting I was getting emotional as yours uh yeah saying that's very uh important stuff and and like i'm it's awesome to work with you and like i'm just super stoked that we're like i'm so grateful for our friendship too it's amazing so um yeah all right let's let's end it before we So I really want to thank Hilda for taking so much time uh, and and doing this hopefully first conversation with me. Um, I hope that you're inspired by her story, but really um, at least get a taste of some of the work that she's doing um, and the importance of that work. So um, uh, I'll definitely keep you posted as we start uh, uh, doing more conversations around uh, DEI. And hopefully we'll we'll get a mini series together, or we're going to be able to do some additional conversations uh, with her and myself. Definitely reach out to her. She 
She's awesome and will take your email. She will respond. Uh, check out hmjequityconsulting.com to learn more about Hilda. And uh, thanks a lot for tuning in. We'll see you next time.